0: So, what a saga. The whole chapter of John 9. And it's a juicy story. Now, if you happen to have zoned out during it, here's an excerpt from Reverend Katie's Cliff Notes. The full notes themselves would be pretty long. But basically, Jesus heals a man who's been blind since birth. The neighbors, how? No way. The man, Yahweh, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, I saw. Religious leaders, no way, how? The man, Yahweh, Jesus put mud on, I washed, I saw. The religious leaders grab the parents, asking, how? Was he really blind? The parents kind of hedge uh he sees now he was blind ask him leaders again but jesus can't no way the man again yeah way i was blind and now i see leaders but how the man exasperated dudes you don't get it (laughs) leaders get out of here (laughs) great conclusion Jesus goes and finds the man, says, yep, I'm the Messiah, the man. Wow, I totally believe. And Jesus turns to the religious leaders, warning, dudes, you are the blind ones. What's happening here may not so much be about the healing itself, but more about revealing who Jesus is. It's the revelation of God in our midst, the revelation of the glory of God, and yet people not getting it. It's stunning how Jesus' healing reveals the fullness of who the man who'd been born blind was a beloved child of God. That fullness was already there, but now with the healing, the fullness is visible. So it begs a question how often are we blind to the glory of God in our midst? How many times do we put on the blinders because of our own misconceptions, our own worldviews, perhaps even our theology and what we think we know about God? May I look at my own life and I see places where I've carried blinders to the glory of God remember way back in the 90s, having a yoga teacher. He's a really humble, quiet man. And he died of lung cancer, really young. And there was a funeral and a friend and I had been in the class. We're like, you know, we should go support him. He's so quiet. You know, maybe there won't be many people there. We get to the church about 10 minutes early and there's a crowd outside. And we join the crowd, kind of befuddled, get in, sitting in one of the last rows, look at the program, and holy smokes, Tom Bradley is going to talk. In my mind, I remember that there was a senator of ours or a congressperson. I don't know if that's true, but my mind was absolutely blown. I had only seen the glory of God in what he had been and who he'd been in our yoga class and i put blinders on that and didn't even conceive that the glory of who he was had a richer expression my blindness so i wonder if the core of this healing story is really the dynamic of our own blindness i'm not sure it's actually about the bodily healing I mean, I do think it's odd that the way Christianity has often taken these miraculous bodily healing stories, the way we've taken them somewhat literally, is to then think, well, if I pray enough and I'm faithful enough, then Jesus will heal me or heal my loved ones. But we don't take other miracles that way. We don't take the miracle of the water turning into wine to be, well, gee, if I run out of wine, how come I can't turn the water into wine? I must not be praying enough. So the miracle of this actual physical transformation of a man being shunned, a man in shadow and obscurity is the miracle of everyone's eyes around being see, being able to see the light in that man's soul, his true self that had already been there and now made visible. And that transformation, I think, is an inspiration and a call for all of us, for how do we see one another. It challenges limitations we put on God, on the power of God, and the power of Jesus in the world. As everyone thought that the man who had been born blind was born blind because either his parents sinned or maybe he did. They'd never conceived of him as a full human being only thought of him as shrouded in sin. Makes me wonder what kind of blame do we take on, blame that is, in a sense, blinders to who and what people are, the glory of God and people in the world. I mean, historically, blame has has swirled around illness. In the 1980s, I had an aunt who very aggressive breast cancer and died in her early 40s. And it was said, you know, she had a lot of repressed anger, you know, wasn't the best marriage, implying that she had caused her cancer. And even through the 1950s into the 60s, cancer was so shrouded in stigma that some doctors wouldn't even tell their patients. And we still do it with mental illnesses and other diseases. Oh, it must be the parents who caused it. It must be something terrible about the upbringing. Sometimes when the glory of God and people around us is suddenly revealed in ways that surprise us, we don't completely get how. How did that happen? And sometimes we don't trust if it's real. And sometimes if we have a sense that there was an agent of change we'll maybe start blaming that agent of change. I think about transgender youth and the battle around teens' access to gender-affirming treatment. According to the Journal of Adolescent Health, people under 18 who are receiving hormone therapy have a nearly 40% lower odds of a suicide attempt in that year. 40% lower odds of a suicide attempt. And what that points at is it's not being transgender or non-binary that's killing people. It's our societal view that keeps them not able to grow into who God created them to be. So we as a culture here in the States now have over 450 bills introduced in 44 states that make it harder for young people to get the support, respect, and healthcare needed to, they need to thrive into the fullness and the glory of who God created them to be. Now, the other reaction we can have when we see these big transformations and they don't quite fit with our worldviews is we might be able to maybe quietly accept it in our world but maybe not go so public about that acceptance about that recognition, like the parents of the man born without sight, when they're brought to the Pharisees and asked how did it happen, they're like, don't ask us, you know, feared, afraid of what the consequences will be if they proclaim what they know is true privately. And again, that reminds me of families where there's a family member who has come out, as LGBTQ plus, there might be internal acceptance within the family unit, but yet external denial and pushing back on the loved one who's come out into the world. Well, you know, they can handle the social ramifications. We sometimes use scripture to hide light, to hide the glory of God. We I mean, think about in this country the ways we've justified slavery, used scripture to justify slavery. You know the verse, uh, "Slaves, obey your masters." Or scripture against women. You know, women don't speak in church. Hmm. And it's fascinating today. There's a guest essay in the New York Times, one that struck me so deeply. I've redone the entire end of the sermon but it's an essay on how ancient Judaism recognized a range of genders in a way that we do not now. It's written by Rabbi Elliot Kukla, who says there are six genders beyond male and female that appear in ancient Jewish holy texts and appear hundreds of times in discussions about childbirth, marriage, inheritance, holidays, ritual leadership, and more. When a child was born in the ancient Jewish world, it would be designated as one of four identities, a boy, a girl, what was called a tum-tum, neither clearly male or female, or androgynous, who has both male and female characteristics. And then there were two more gender expressions recognized as developed in life. And according to one fifth century interpretation of the Bible that this rabbi cites, the very first human being, Adam, was actually androgynous. So when for centuries we've said, how is it possible to be transgender? Now, the true light, God's light, is starting to shine. People living in that truth are emerging from obscurity, shame, and blame that our culture has imposed. And it's not that that glory was never there. It was not seen by us because of our blindness. If we go to the first reading, another good long one, but not quite as long as the Gospel. Our first reading this morning is about how God sends Samuel to Jesse to find the anointed one, who will be the new king. And Jesse brings his sons one by one, and God tells Samuel, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one, not the oldest who it should have been, not the ones that uh, were most attractive. And the scripture says, for the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks in the heart. The heart, that's where God's light shines. The heart is where God knows God's glory lives. We're the ones that put up the impediments. So our challenge this morning is... Be aware of where we might have blinders, and the challenge with that is we don't know. So perhaps invitation is to catch ourselves when we start saying how about something that might be good. How's that possible? That doesn't ring with my logic. Because the glory of God is around us in many marvelous ways. And it is our call as Christians to see that glory, uphold that glory, so that glory can live, so that glory can help move this world into a world God wants, a world of justice, a world of liberation, a world that is life-giving to absolutely everyone. Amen.